See, I believe in hope. I believe in belief. between the books we're reading and Ted Lasso. And that's why we love you. (laughs) Did you enjoy Miss Perkins? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it's a great book. I I will admit, I don't feel like I want to read any of the others. Like this, I'm not like, oh, I want to read the next one, but I enjoyed it. Yeah, Yeah, I'm satisfied with where it ended up, even though it was kind of an open-ended, cliffhanger-y type ending. Ooh, almost literally. Yeah, (laughs) fair enough. (laughs) Fair enough. <laughs> See, I'm spotting patterns like Andrea. It's rubbing off on me. <laughs> I was the same though. I was like, you know what? This was good, but there's until I get through like my other list of great recommendations we've been getting from some of our book club viewers. I don't. I'm not in a rush to read it. Yeah. The next one, and but it was it did its job for me. Like I, the ending was great. Mm-hmm. I thought, yeah, nice. I can make up the mm-hmm. rest in my head. So many great recommendations from our followers on Twitter. So Y'all are great. Yes. Yeah. That keep list them is only coming. Get bigger too. Yeah. Keep them coming because I need to panic about something else other than my everyday life. Why not be the books I need to get through? So, Miss Peregrine. I mean, does for our viewers out there, anybody remember who? where Miss Peregrine comes into Ted Lasso? Because, like, I think it's one of those you blink and you miss it. I, I blunked and missed it. <laughs> if it wasn't for, if I'd still been doing this myself, we wouldn't have ever read this book because I had no clue, never even saw anything to do with it. And then I think it was it was Andrea, wasn't it? Was yeah, like, because I, I recognised the cover. Sorry. That's just, I mean, the thing is the cover, when you say I recognise the cover, the cover was on screen for about a fifth of a second. I mean, I struggled to even pause on some of the clearer ones to get a clear picture of what it was. How you saw that was, yeah, you can spot patterns. Well, it's a striking cover. It's black and white, and it's got that white figure on the front. Mm. Like, I just feel like it pops. So, Andrea, when when do we see this book show up in Ted Lasso? So it is in the episode where he gifts the books to the team and Robbie. Robbie? Who is Robbie? Uh, we had to look that up. Robbie is the one who opens it. And so here we are. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Being way too modest. Well, I'll talk a little bit about Robbie for us, you know, because honestly, we don't really know about much about him. Apparently his name is Robbie Roberts. So there's that he's oh, got going for him. <laughs> I don't know about that, but sure. 
Um, he's a forward on Richmond, though, at least according to the wiki, but it doesn't specify what kind of forward, you know, if it's just general and I am not the football expert here. So, uh, I even had to make sure that like a striker was a forward when I, <laughs> I reached, I was like, Marita, my sports queen, please tell me. <laughs> we do see Robbie now. And again, like if you go through and once you're aware of him, you start picking up on where he is. I mean, he's at the games, he's in the club scene. Um, he's also when they do the ghost cleansing and they get rid of everybody sacrifices something, he throws something, although I couldn't tell what it was into the fire. And Andrea will, she'll know, she'll be able to spot it. <laughs> And he's even at the karaoke scene um, that we have. And the there. Iron Giant. He was the one fiddling about on his phone, I think. You're right. Yep. You're yep. absolutely Thanks. right. See? And that's the only reason that that and that he, he subbed for Jamie was the only reason. Well, I that's what I was going to yeah. say is that he, that's what, if anybody recognizes him for anything, it's probably that moment uh, in tan lines where Ted was like, mm, nope, Jamie, you're out. Robbie, you're in. And it's just, that's a it's a perfect moment and that's going to tie into a lot of my analysis of of our topic today Robbie's around from day one and as we mentioned he's one of the players that receives a book from Ted and we have to ask like why why would Ted gift this book to Robbie perhaps because he's a minor character like we can look at it on a broader scale and maybe consider it an analogy to how Ted sees the team, but, and maybe some of you will do that for us later on. I don't know, but I want to consider the possibility that Robbie is meant to learn lessons from the book's main character, Jacob. This is where I'm going with it. Now, according to the wiki, we can see that Robbie has played for two clubs before he came to Richmond. He was on Port Vale and Wimbledon. And the wiki also tells us that he's in his final year of his contract. Now, uh, I looked it up and it said like up to five years for contracts. I don't know that there's any hard evidence for this that he's in his last year of his contract. I don't know if maybe they didn't sign him on for season three and that's why they're accounting for it or what. I don't know where that bit comes from. One, we don't know how long that contract was for. And two, we also don't know if maybe he's on loan to Richmond like, uh, like, uh, like Jamie Tart was. So he could have had like a five-year contract and then just been shipped off to, to Richmond for the last two years. Um, but I've been at tennis at Wimbledon, I take it. Yeah. <laughs> I, I will say, usually you go on a, on a loan, I'm pretty sure, to a, a, a less competitive team because they loan players out so they get more playing time. Mm -hmm. um, is that correct, Michaela? I'm only nodding because I had to ask my husband this and he told me it. So I'm not going to take credit for knowing it other okay. than I literally not that long ago. My, my husband's like never been so asked so many questions about football in his entire life. Like, What's going on? Asking about like positions and things. So yeah, that's the only reason I know it. Well, I like to imagine that season one of Ted Lasso was Robbie's first season at Richmond. You know, I don't, I get, I don't have any hard evidence for this, but, um, but it works for my, it works for my argument. So we have just, nothing to the contrary. Just run. Yeah. Take so it. That's what I was going to say. Just humor, <laughs> just humor me and come along. It'll for my be ride. on the wiki tomorrow. Watch. So <laughs> go on the wiki and it'll be like source 
Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. It, like I said, it works for my argument. So I'm going with it. It was his first year on Richmond when the season, when the, the show started. Here's my take. Everyone has a role to play. Every teammate is important. Now, Robbie may not be an ace like Jamie and later Danny. He might not be a leader like Roy and later Isaac. And he might not even be first string. I mean, we see, I think he's on the second team, right? We probably see him in the, the neon, I pennies. don't know what, They're the pennies, pennies, the pennies. Yes. You say that uh, word at and least I remember in the US. Okay. <laughs> um, but he's still important. And we see that importance when Ted brings him in for Jamie Tart, right? In that moment when the, the highlighter shows the little numbers that like who's going out and who's going in, Robbie just stares at Ted in disbelief. Like, wait, me, you're, you're <laughs> putting me in for, oh gosh, right? No pressure. So parallel time. Robbie is Jacob. Jamie is Abraham. That's Jacob's grandfather. At, le at least in Robbie's eyes, stick with me. I know, like, mm, you might have some doubts now, but I, I've, I've got, I've got a plan for him. And Ted is Miss Peregrine. Oh. In the novel, Jacob spends a good portion of it doubting his value, doubting that he has any significant role to play among the peculiar children. Right? He looks at them and he sees that they all have special gifts, and he doesn't think he has anything to add to the equation. He doesn't even know that he's a peculiar he doesn't pick up on the fact that of this until later with a conversation he has with miss peregrine she knows she knows that he would be unable to pass into their loop if he wasn't peculiar and she also knows that he has potential he just needs to figure it out for himself so she provides him with the opportunity to fully realize his abilities and the other pe peculiar children are there supporting him and sometimes questioning him uh, along the way. So I think this, this is where the, the team dynamic comes in is the whole group of peculiar children um, and Ted and Miss Peregrine. So again, we don't get a lot of screen time with Robbie, but we do know that Ted and Beard uh, did their research on the players before gifting them these books, right? They're sitting at the pub the night before and they're like, all right, let's figure this out. What's the deal with each of them? And, and those books are chosen with care. Um, so again, this is why I think it's Robbie's first year on Richmond. I mean, even if it's not, he still, I get the impression that he feels like an outsider maybe to some extent. And so my analogy still works. Keep going. Keep sticking it's, with it, me. It was constantly working. <laughs> it was working. I'm with you. <laughs> so going back to the book, Jacob wasn't sure that he was going to stay with the peculiar children as we're going through, uh, these earlier sections of the novel and Robbie's played on multiple teams. You know, maybe he doesn't feel like he belongs or fits in with Richmond. It's not until the combination of Miss Peregrine and the peculiar children show Jacob he's important, even if he's not super strong or can't create fire or turn invisible. That's when, that's when he figures, okay, you, I, I do belong here. I do have a place. These are my people. And it's not until the arrival of Ted and the growth of the team as a true team, you know, in that sense of camaraderie and working together, that they're a team that supports one another. They're a team that lifts one another up. And this is when maybe Robbie feels that he truly belongs among 
Richmond and all their players. Okay, so now my Jamie Tart as Abraham bit. <laughs> I think this is the part that might make the most eyebrows raise. Um, well, maybe... I've done my eyebrows, so I may as well raise them. <laughs> <laughs> Took me a while to put these suckers on my face. May as well use them. There you go. I think it might be a bit of a stretch in most capacities, but there is this one particular aspect of Abraham that works for the parallel, and this is where I'm, I'm coming from. Now, the peculiar children looked up to Abraham, right? He's long gone, and he's still with them in a sense, right? He, his energy, his presence is always sort of there and missed. His abilities are praised, and he was sort of this giant figure in in the sense that even after all these years of him being gone, the peculiar children are still talking about him and they recall what he did for them as a collective. Now, Jamie is in no way idealized by the team, like especially in season one. In fact, many of the players actually have a strong dislike for him because he's pretty narcissistic and cocky, you know? <laughs> He's not a team player the way that Abraham was, and he certainly doesn't sacrifice anything for the team, again, at least in season one. But there is one thing that I think he might have in common with Jacob's grandfather. Jacob feels as though he can never fill Abraham's shoes. He has the exact same peculiar ability that his grandfather had, but he doesn't trust himself with that skill. He doesn't recognize his ability to, to be the one that could possibly save the day. And I think Robbie feels kind of similar to this in comparison with Jamie. I mean, if you're playing second string to Jamie Tart, those are some big shoes to fill. Um, you know, how could he fill those shoes? Why is Ted putting him in the game? <laughs> it was so much pressure as well for him. You know, I was like, oh my God, what a lot of pressure for that poor young man. Exactly. You see the fear in his face. The fear. It was like mm -hmm. disbelief and fear. Yeah. No, I was you, just say, you wonder if they warm up, like if they get used to not getting played, if they don't maybe warm up as much. And then suddenly he got played like out of nowhere and he was probably like, shit, my hamstrings. Like, is that a thing? Or Well, yeah. I mean, it's possible. I think in this case, he got excited to be in before he knew he, who he was going in for. Right. And then he's <laughs> yeah. like, mm, oh, wait. So, so if you watch a, 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 Premier League game, um, you'll see, and and really any game, you'll see the players who might go in kind of warming up, and that's when they put the pennies on, so they're distinct from the players on the sideline, right? So you'll see a whole bunch of guys with pennies on who are kind of running around and um, getting warmed up without knowing necessarily when they're going in or if they're going in or who they're going in for. You'll see those players get up to warm up, and, and so he would know he was going in probably, but just not have an idea who that was for uh, yeah i think he was ready to go in it's just a matter of who he was going in for that really mm -hmm. threw him for a loop robbie's not confident in taking on jamie's position in this moment like they might both be forwards but jamie is a striker like he's the guy that you want to score and robbie isn't known for that at least as to our knowledge but if he remembers the lessons from miss peregrine and the peculiar children I'm assuming he read the book Ted gave him. He should know to trust Ted and his team and that things will work out even if there's trouble along the way. And they do. I mean, the team wins, right? In that game, they win. And, you know, it's not Robbie who scores that goal. Roy passes to Sam for the winning goal. But 
Robbie was able to play his role, be a part of the team. And it was an important one in that moment. That's why I think Jamie Tart is Abraham. <laughs> I like that. I mean, I mean, it makes a lot of sense because I know you said that the, the most of the team didn't really like Jamie at the start. But if you remember Roy saying, um, just because your left foot was kissed by God, those arseholes worship you. So the, the, there was a certain amount of like, worship going on what even even probably by the people even Sam kind of like wanted to learn from him even though he was being a dick to him so there was a sort of like worship but not any that Jamie deserved or handled well yeah and there exactly, I think yeah. there was a point in the show I, I think it was when Jamie didn't like help Sam stand up uh, after he went down in the game that's sort of when a lot of people lost their like idealistic view mm -hmm. of Jamie Tart. Mm -hmm. Andrea, you were going to, and I have one last par parallel uh, about Miss Peregrine and Ted. And this one's really brief. You know, it's just, I think about this moment in season two at the end where Ted goes down because of Nate snitching about his mental health to Trent Krim and that being published and just sort of the reaction of the townspeople and the reaction of the, the media in, in general. But the team is there for him. The team is backing him up. The team is supporting him and lifting him up. Like when he goes and apologizes to them about not saying something to them sooner, they're like, you know, we die for you, coach. <laughs> you know, um, so so they're they're all in at this point. And, you know, when Miss Peregrine gets stuck as a bird, the peculiar children all rally together to support her, to protect her, to try and find a way that she can leave that form once again. And they're not going to just leave her behind. So I think that that team camaraderie uh, really works well there. And again, if we want the lesson to be for the whole team, it still works, right? Everybody has a role to play. Everyone brings a different skill to the table. And it's only with all of those skills combined that they can win. Believe in yourself and believe in one another. Believe. I mean, that's Ted Lasso. So that's my, that's my take. That's why I think that gave me the book works for Robbie. <laughs> I love it. I love that. I, yeah. I mean, the point that, you know, Robbie needs to see himself. He needs to believe he's just as important. You know, and Jacob does it like Jacob is the whole time. He's like, I'm not, no, like I'm not here because I have like, when he has that moment, when and I've forgotten the girl's name, but she's like, well, you can get through the, you can get through the barrier. Emma. Emma. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Emma's like, you know, he's just like, well, of course I'm not, you know, I'm not one of you guys. Like, I'm not one of you. I'm, I'm over here doing my own thing. And she's just like, well, you can pass that barrier, whatever the little, you know, going through the thing and then pass the barrier. And he like the, that moment for him, much like Robbie, right? What? You know, like, and, you know, and then he realizes that like, it's, it was a, you know, I, I, I wasn't, that, I didn't honestly pick up on that until you were talking about it, but yeah, that parallel then with Robbie's scene where he's like, wait, what? I could do this? Oops, in it says, some quotes along the way, I think are very Ted Lasso. It doesn't matter what I think, what matters is what's true. In this case, the opposite of Ted's teaching. And it's easy to say you don't care about money when you have plenty of it. And that's true. Jacob, like Ted, is aware of his privilege. Um, so I will continue on to my theme, which was uh, a little similar. 
um, but a slightly different take. <laughs> um, so I titled my theme, is this group of talented misfit kids actually a sports team? Um, and so, uh, you know, I kind of started my, my, what I had written, just kind of saying like, we don't know anything about Robbie. Now we do. <laughs> Thanks, Bex. <laughs> right. But like in the show, in the show, we don't know anything about Robbie at the time. Um, and, you know, and uh, when you're thinking about when I started to think about a kid who has a connection with his grandfather um, right before he dies and, you know, a kid who maybe isn't sure that what he's doing, you know, is going to be right. And, um, you know, is also immediately affected by his father, his grandfather's loss and clearly has this connection with him. I just immediately thought of Roy Kent. I mean, he was the first as I'm reading it, he literally, Roy Kent just popped in my mind as like, oh yeah, there, you know, the whole story he told, um, you know, about his grandfather and his blankie, <laughs> you know, um, the grandfather was, drove him to his first, um, you know, the, drove him out to the team and he was cold and he gave him the blanket and he was scared. And like, his father was like, kind of giving him, um, you know, just trying to help him feel better and make, giving him confidence and all that kind of thing. And I felt like Abraham and Jacob in the book also had a, clearly had a very sim similar connection. Although I guess sad in the book that like Jacob, you know, started to believe that his father was, his grandfather was kind of senile and maybe losing it and kind of talking about this stuff that didn't exist. You know, that was, that was, a, you know, a sad, but probably very realistic how someone would react, you know, when, you know, we, I think we all as kids, right. When your parents talk, you're just like, Oh God. Yeah. Like, okay. You know? <laughs> um, right. So, uh, so anyway, so it just really got me to thinking about, um, how the book was commenting on Roy and the whole team. Cause one of the things I've noticed throughout this whole, you know, this whole book club is that every book as I've read it with the Ted Lasso, like glasses on that it's not, the book isn't always just about the person reading it right? Like sometimes it's a book you're reading it. You're like, this isn't about, you know, this isn't about the person at all, which kind of wrinkle of time, wrinkle of time definitely had a lot of Roy in it, but it had a lot of other people, you know? And, and, and I always felt like Ender's game wasn't, was actually started to turn into a book about Jamie for Sam to learn, you know? Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm seeing a lot of these connections. So I was just like, okay, well, clearly the book meant something to Robbie who, again, we don't know now we know. And so I saw this connection about Roy with his grandfather. It, it, it got me thinking a lot about kind of the connection with a lot of the different sports teams and football and any sport. Um, but you know, a team is made up of people who have peculiar talents, right? Everyone has their, their role on the field that they're playing. There's specific people that are, you know, designated for scoring for, um, defense, you know, and, in just about any sport that there's the connection so that there was a connection in, in every sport, particularly football, though, again, there's peculiarities, there's different talents that people have for the different places on the field that they are doing, you know, almost kind of like, right. Like a rock band. Everyone always talks about the singer, the lead singer is the one that gets all the groupies. Right. But then there's the drummer keeping the whole goddamn, you know, rhythm of the song going. Like the, the drummer is the reason that people are dancing and bopping their heads, but the drummer never gets any glory, right? Like how many, you know, there's always the jokes about the drummers. So like, I felt like this was kind of a similar thing where it's like, okay, like, you know, the, the person scoring um, and, you know, like what Bex was saying in her part, Jamie's the one getting the glory, but that there's these, all these other people that are putting their part into it. And so Roy, obviously was also a star, right? Roy obviously is a star and he is someone who was um, influential. He was someone who was a big name. He had many years in the, you know, 
many years that he was playing and was considered one of the stars of the team as well, even though he was aging. And so I definitely felt that there was, I think that's what kind of makes some of the, that's what makes someone a star in sports, especially is when they know their lane and they stick with it. Right. I feel like that's what stars do. Like, you know, most stars when they are on the field of whatever sport they're playing, right. They stick to what they're good at. Like they know that they're the one that's going to make the final point at the end of the game. They know that they're that person. And that's where they, they put themselves in the position to get right to get the ball, whatever, at the right moment and make the score. And that's what they're looking for. And so it's like, it really does kind of become this almost singular peculiarity, the singular thing that makes them special, right? And that is what makes them special. It may, you know, made me think a lot about that's what makes people special when they play sports. Like we, not everyone is good at sports. Not everyone is going to make any team in school. Not anyone's going to make every team, you know, whatever. Even the people that are good in sports in high school, college don't make the, they don't make the, whatever the, the, the pros. God. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> they don't make the pros, but that everyone, um, all the players on the, uh, the team, they have their, their peculiar thing that they do and it's what they're good at. And that it is the thing that they focus on. And they are, what makes the stars so great is that they know what they need to focus on. They know the thing that they do well, honestly, that was kind of Nate's point to to Roy in the, um, you know, when he was telling him your superpower is this, and you're spending all this time right now, not, not focusing on your peculiarity or not focusing on what makes you good. I don't actually, I don't necessarily see Nate in this book, but just kind of more again, talking about this, like how, how Roy, it could be Jacob. Um, you know, and I, I agree with you, like Ted is definitely Miss Peregrine. And I saw Keely then as Emma in this, because they were, had that, they had that immediate connection with them. And I mean, not that I saw Keely exactly in Emma. Emma wasn't necessarily like, I didn't read Emma and think, oh, that's Keely. But just like, if you're going to put all the, you know, if you're going to put all the characters in the book, like, you know, okay, here's his love interest. And she's, and she kind of helped him see some of his value, right? That is what Keely, that is how Keely helped both um, Roy and uh, Jamie. She kind of being the, being the cheerleader on the side and she clearly has her own talent, her own thing that she brings, but she's also the one kind of uplifting everyone around her. And so, uh, and, and then that also gave me that parallel for Jamie. So, you know, Jamie's relationship with his family, I felt like maybe, you know, Jacob's parents were definitely like, what's I like, what's up with those two, you know, like they just were not, they were not there for him. And they were just kind of always trying to kind of put him in a box and, and belittle him in a way. And I don't think we really know Roy's parents. Like he's talked about his grandfather, obviously, but I, you know, and he, the one mention of his father was that. Of course he he's racist. a little racist. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so maybe the parents too, for Jacob are similar to Roy, but I was thinking about Jamie, like I said, that the parallel for me was that J Jamie's father was definitely probably more Jacob's parents. If J you know, Jamie was Jacob and then his mom probably was Abraham because he also kind of lost a little bit of a connection with his mom. And he was focusing on what his dad was saying to him, or maybe the therapist would be a, a good stand in, in that, in that storyline. But yeah, it, it, for me, that just all kind of connected in that way of like, just the way that people, the, the way that people join teams or do things like this, people with talents. And, and again, I'm just going to bring up music again. I feel like music is another one. Like people just have this peculiarity and like, 
I just recently listened to Dave Grohl's memoir and just like, literally he was like, he plays drums in his mouth. And like, he like immediately, like as a kid, like understood rhythm and was like, you know, it was just like, and people don't do that. Right. I've never thought that way. I've never thought in rhythm, you know? Um, I'm, I'm married to one of those and I'm with you. I like, I am the least musical person. So I I get that. You know, I, I always say that he's got all the musical talent and skill for our family, but that doesn't mean I don't bring something. I just don't bring the yes. musical aspect. So I, I like that parallel. That. Um, and it, it kind of made me think too, that Jason Sudeikis was a basketball player and basketball to me is very similar to, uh, football. Um, <laughs> um I actually, very- I don't think I'm going to pick his up on that anymore after Brendan Hunt's tweet this week. Somebody like you picked him up on it. But clearly yeah. he does these videos for Americans. So of course you'd call it soccer, right? Of course you call it soccer, yeah. <laughs> it's somebody <laughs> like he replied to somebody and it was like just eviscerated them. And I was like, yeah, I'm not I'm gonna show up about that now. I'm gonna let you But leave. our audience is all over, so it yeah, is so, quite yeah. right. I, I'm gonna I'm no, I'm gonna I'm but, gonna take a step back all, from the jingoism. It's all fun and games in book club. We we know it comes from a place <laughs> yeah, of love. I'm not taking, I'm not yes. taking the it's not like a bookmarked a page where they said deflated soccer ball just so I could go strike for ransom rigs yeah so basketball I was saying is also a very specific the way the way the basketball um forms on the field and the way that you know the the forwards and the people that are scoring and the people that are blocking there are always on that side of the field and the people that are you know then there's people that are hanging out in the back and it just flows in a very football like way for me when I think of it. And Jason was a basketball player. And so that was a, you know, again, like there's the, there's the person that does the three point shot. There's a person that can dunk. There's, you know, everyone again on the field is doing their thing and they're very focused, you know, and the, if you think of the greats, cause the greats could do the thing they could do. Michael Jordan did what he did because he had a team around him. They all played their role and Michael Jordan played his role. And then they were, you know, they were just successful. And so again, it just, for me was very much like, well, yeah, but you know, yeah. Peculiarities are talents like that. People who can do things like this and the rest of us can't, and we kind of separate them out and we feel like they are not like the rest of us, you know, and, and we hold them up for this talent that they have. And they feel very ostracized probably from the, from all of us and from their team, like someone like Robbie, who maybe doesn't see himself as someone who has, um, you know, a Jamie like skill to what Bex was saying, right. He feels ostracized both from his, everyone around him. And he feels ostracized from his family. And I feel like, and that that actually for Jacob was definitely, you know, he, he was like living in this world that he never felt something was right. in. and so then he meets these kids and he's just like, oh yeah, but I'm not one of you guys either. I'm, you know, I'm just here to help. And I, I'm just here because I figured something out about my grandfather, but I'm not part of you, you know? So that's actually a very interesting connection for me from what you said back about Robbie. Just describe me and the ADHD community. Yeah. (laughs) It's like, I don't think I'm meant to be here, but you, you look seem really cool. And like I fit in and then like you're late, you've got ADHD. Oh, that makes sense. (laughs) Right. But even, even applying this to us in book club, like everybody has a role. We each do a different component of this group. Like uh, this project wouldn't be what it is if we didn't each have our own strengths that we brought to the team. So we are also, as we said at the beginning, the peculiar children. (laughs) We are. And here we are doing our thing. (laughs) 
doing our thing. I like Those that you brought in another out. another character, right? You know, as you said, so often the book is for the character that Ted gave the gave the book to, but many times we can also see so much more in it. And I love that it's not just a one for one exact parallel. He's not like here, yeah. Sam, this is you in a book. Here, Robbie, this is you in a book. It's like, well, there are lessons to be learned from it. And I think these lessons will help you in whatever areas you need to grow. Yeah, definitely. If you hear grumbling and moaning, whinging noises in the background, it's not my husband, it's my dog. Just, <laughs> I promise it's my dog. <laughs> Sometimes it sounds like a little motorcycle going by. It does. So I looked at this um, from a specific point of view. And that is that with this book and in Ted Lasso, there's a common theme of anxiety. And as mm. someone with an anxiety disorder, I have picked up on a few bits and pieces that are relevant from my perspective. So, and it, it might also be from Ted's as well. So I, I'll just point out some observations first that I've enjoyed and then I'll, uh, you know, we can discuss the main thing. But my title is... Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children, Anxiety and the Before and After, which sounds really posh. Sounds like a dissertation. <laughs> yeah, but the rest of it doesn't. <laughs> the rest of it <laughs> sounds like the inside of my brain at 3am and I'm just supposed to decipher it, but we'll figure it out. Um, but yeah, I do believe, obviously, reading through this book, this book to be about anxiety and certainly has a fair amount of allegory and, and ways to sort of represent anxiety and I think, I don't know what, what made me look it up, but in, in like a lot of Scottish folklore, so I assume maybe Welsh and Irish as well, birds have symbolic meaning. And in Celtic folklore, a peregrine is a symbol to be careful and to keep your eyes open to possible dangers. And I, the reason I find that so interesting is that to me is an anxiety fight or flight in the sense that you're overly observant to the point where it actually causes more harm than it prevents. It's interesting that the, the peregrine it was a, a sort of focus for being careful and to keep your eyes open. But obviously with Ted, we can go too far into that sort of side of things as well. Um, a temporal loop in itself for me is a sort of like, it sounds like anxiety, you know, um, Anxiety behaviours can feel like a temporal loop in the sense that you're just going through the motions, trying not to like have a panic attack or freak out or, or spend most of your time ruminating over something that doesn't matter to then go to bed. Let that all go through your mind when you're trying to get to sleep and do the same thing over again the next day, regardless of what your plans for that day is, you're, you're doing the, it's the same pattern that you're following. The fact that this book is, now this is off topic, but you know I like to go down my little Colin rabbit hole. This book is set in Wales, most of it, and it wasn't given to Colin, which I find quite interesting um, in the sense that it would have been the obvious choice because of the Welsh connection, and it isn't, which means that it furthers my theory that Colin's book is a significant one to his arc. <laughs> that was my tangent for this week. <laughs> There's a lot of little bits and pieces of information, like forgetting names when I'm nervous, that give us clues that Jacob does suffer from anxiety. And not even 
you know, since what happened to his grandfather, it seems he was an anxious child as well, but given some of his stories and how he struggled to sort of integrate and make friends and things like that as well. Also, there's a couple of lines that I think are really good, like blown up and stitched back together for an, et an eternity, which is how he describes the temporal loop of the day of the bombing at the school. And being blown up and stitched back together for eternity it does sound like when you have a mental illness. <laughs> You know, it's like, how many times can I stitch myself back? Infinitely, it's fine, but it does sound like that. You know, it's that was that line really stuck out to me. On page 226, basically, <laughs> Jacob calls his dad out, and at the same time, me, just at me next time, Jacob, when he goes on about how his dad, like, picks a thing that he's really into, and then he devotes all his time to that thing, and then one tiny little problem comes up, and he goes, ah, I'm not doing it anymore. Yeah, just at me next time. That was rude. Well, I, I also, if I could jump in here, I think it's really interesting with Jacob's dad that he's picked these things like, you know, studied languages in, in college and now birds that really reflect his dad trying to relate to his own father in a way that he never could, right? Because his dad was obviously obsessed with like Miss Peregrine, the bird, his dad, you know, originally spoke languages that weren't English. And I think that's underscored by the, you know, um, Ransom Riggs does this thing with the characters in the book where the naming is very reflective of, you know, what their powers are, right? With the, you know, sort of like um, what J.K. Rowling does, but not uh, offensively. <laughs> um, but you, yeah. you guys spotted that, right? But, you know, we've got Abraham, who's a biblical character, Jacob, who's biblically like Abraham's grandson, right? And then his dad's name is Franklin. And his dad is so marked as not being one of them that so much of what his dad does is trying to relate to his dad in a way that he just never can. So mm -hmm. sorry, that was a little off, off no, track. No, no, but... no, no, it makes, yeah, it makes total sense. I, I actually saw quite a lot of myself and Jacob's dad, which was a wake up call. Um, and lastly, for my, my sort of warm up notes, masters of time without being masters of death and the, the thing with anxiety is it's it's really there to protect us right at the right level it's there so that we can spot prey and we can keep ourselves safe and we can assess a situation before we throw ourselves in it which was all great when we was like chasing animals and stuff but we really don't need to be that overly observant and 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 one of the things i think that anxiety can really do is mess with your perception of your own body as well so whereby something that you think is so really bad and over the top it's not till you're out of that situation where you realize it wasn't it was just your anxiety reacting to it but specifically I want to, to look at the the way Jacob put the before and the after which I thought was great or which I thought was Jacob's way of putting what happened with his grandfather in the woods behind his house everything before that and everything after after that I think regardless of, of whether you've got anxiety or not everybody's got that in their life a before and an after of a certain thing happening but it's the way that we see Jacob sort of self-doubt and the way that he looks at himself that, that can reflect a lot of um, behaviors of anxious people or people with anxiety disorders so I would think with Ted's before and after that Obviously, that would be when he lost his dad. I mean, I'm saying obviously, to us, obviously, from the information we were given, that's what the time we would pick. And for Jacob's before and after, it was finding his grandfather dead and then seeing the monster sort of standing above his body. With Ted, we know that the way he's reacted to this is to not let anybody get by him that might be hurting. Like, that's his sort of way 
of, of dealing with it after. After finding his grandfather dead and seeing the monster, Jacob decides to play along with his therapist and his mum and his dad because he just finds it easier to tell them what they want to hear. Even if he doesn't really believe it himself, he also does get to a point where he starts to convince himself, which is a thing with anxiety that, that can happen as well because the trouble is it's like the boy who cried wolf, although it's, you're not crying wolf, but people are so used to you maybe freaking out about things that aren't really that worrying to them that when you, you are actively worried about something, you can't really get anybody to take you seriously. And it's a, it's a, a sort of effect of the anxiety, but it's not through any fault of your own. So, you know, that makes a lot of sense to me as well. But like Ted, the truth sought Jacob out. They both suffer panic attack. Jacob has an anxiety attack triggered by traumatic information that he discovers about his grandfather in that chest in the dilapidated building. Um, and he has uncontrollable emotions about what his grandfather and his family must have lived through. He has really invasive, intrusive thoughts about how that how it's all came down to him and how the whole thing rests on his shoulders, which when you think about what he's act actually saying is a ridiculous thing to expect of yourself, but he's, that goes through it. His thoughts are racing, and then, because he doesn't realise what's happening, pretty much the same as with Ted. He never says in the book, this is a panic attack, or I had, he just describes it. And if you've had one, or if you know people, or if you just know about them in general, you can spot it. If we look at Ted, Ted was triggered by listening to Sam sing Wonderwall, which is actually a song about an imaginary friend that comes to save a person from themselves, which I think is interesting when you see the literary references in Miss Peregrine's which is like sort of not just literary, but movie and things as well. The Lost Boys, Peter Pan, The Secret Garden. It's all things about escapism, but not only just general escapism, escapism from being othered, from having not fitted in somewhere, from having struggled to make friends or just having been different. Those things tend to fit in with that song Wonderwall about an imaginary friend coming to help you. And, and, and basically, he's pondering his divorce at this point as well. So it's a massive big life change that has sort of triggered his panic attack. And he experiences it slightly different from Jacob's, where I would say Jacob's is more what like I get, which is an anxiety attack of a, a sort of mind problem that has some physical effects. Ted has the sort of more, I think I'm having a heart attack, panic attack, because that's, I think, what everybody doesn't realise as well, is like anything else, panic attacks are different for everybody who experiences them but it's just that that Ted Lasso episode did so well at covering most of the bases you could sort of spot it coming. I feel like I'm going to jump in for a second I feel like yeah. it's it also like anxiety reminds me a little bit of like right like dealing with grief you talk to people who've had different kinds of grief but it's so similar right like I don't understand what it's like to lose a child but actually I do because I've experienced a grief right and I can yeah. relate to this person who's lost a child be like, oh my God, I know that pain. I know what that feels like. I know what it feels like to walk around numb and like, right. It's like that you have that shared, mm -hmm. you know, like, even though it's a different uh, reason maybe, or a different thing that's triggering you. Right. It, it is a, that, that's a really interesting yeah. thing for me. I've noticed when I'm talking to people who've experienced the same things as me and I've, you know, been able really to relate in some way. It. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a really good way of putting it because like, like I say, like you've just said, they are the, you know, grief isn't overall, you don't want to say, I know exactly what you're going through. Like I, I couldn't look at somebody with an anxiety disorder and say, I know every single thing you're going through the same as they couldn't with me, but the basic 
sort of general umbrella of it is enough for me to be able to relate. Do we remember? I, I feel like a fake fan, but I know I'm not. It's just my memory and dates. Yes. Um, the date of that Ted's father died. 13th of September, 1991. Yeah, there you go. It's, Thank it's you. It's the, the day after my son's birthday, not 1991, obviously, I hope. Yeah. Um, but... <laughs> It's Friday the 13th, so I I remember the line we were going to watch all those movies together and the rest of it just comes in. Well, the reason I asked is because you you brought up how it was Wonderwall that triggered him and the whole like imaginary friend thing. So I was like, oh, when did that come out? Yeah, no, that came out later. It was. Yeah, I mean, it was 95. I would expect it to have been later if it was something that like connected to this. I, I feel like it would be like morning music morning like with the youth well, like in, in <laughs> um, yeah. but it could just be one of those things where you know sometimes I'll hear a song and it doesn't have any particular connection to yeah. my grandmother for song. example and yet when I hear the lyrics to the song it makes me think of her and then mm-hmm. it will like cause a certain reaction so I I'm curious if the the lyrics to that in any way connect him back to his father you know and yeah. and that's part of his anxiety as well anyway absolutely I think curiosity. the fact that no the fact that um the, the, what the song's about I think is more the writers sort of um knowing what they're doing rather than Ted knowing that's what the song was about in actual fact a lot of people thought the song was about um Noel Gallagher's ex-wife and because the media ran with it he didn't have the guts to tell his wife that it wasn't for her <laughs> until they were divorced. And then he was able to come out and say, actually, this song was about, and it wasn't even about any of that, but how do you tell your missus that the right. song's not about her when the media's already said it is? So real awkward. But yeah, I, I think um, <laughs> it, could, it could be the, yeah, the whole era. I mean, like, like when you're that, when you're this age, like a decade covers quite a long time. So, I mean, even if it's only five years after he's, he could still be really struggling with it so it makes sense yeah. but I thought because initially I thought that it was like a I thought Wonderwall was a love song as well until I looked it up so I thought it was because of the, the, the divorce that was you know and listening to a love song and while you're going through a divorce but no I think it's just that he was he was pondering this divorce and and it, it hit him just at that time I'm not sure but I think the writers definitely know what they're doing with that if that is the case um and I think it fits really well in with the, the sort of this book, you know, as a sort of like hoping someday will come and, and save you, which is what Jacob does for the school. Not on his own, like you say, as part of a team, really it's them all coming together that, that do it. So I think if I'm right that the book is sort of alluding towards anxiety and we can share that with Ted, then there's a quote that I want to mention and sort of take from there and see what everybody thinks. We cling to our fairy tales until the price for believing becomes too high. And that is what Jacob says after he is bullied for parroting his um, grandfather's fairy tales in school and then gets a hiding for it. What Basically what I'm looking to get into here is Jacob's fairy tale were, were those of the peculiar children that were his fairy tales. I believe Ted's fairy tale is that he can keep everybody happy all of the time. That's Ted's fairy tale. Totally. Now, yeah. Absolutely. If we look at the turning points for both characters, and what I mean by turning points is the point where the price becomes too high for the fairy tale. 
So with Jacob, the turning point was because he was bullied, um, physically beat up for believing in this stuff. And that was his price. That was like, yeah, not worth it. For Ted, I've got a small theory about a particular episode that might have been the turning point. Obviously, we only know so much about Ted, um, but we know that he isn't really affected by bullies, or at least he certainly hasn't brought that into his adulthood because he sees them as people who just aren't properly asking questions. They're just judging them. They're not being curious and asking questions. We've seen that during the darts talk. So I think I can safely say that I don't think Ted could be bullied out of his um, fairy tales. But I do believe the episode All Apologies might be the turning point for Ted when it comes to realising that he cannot please everybody all of the time and not lose the plot. It's he can't please everyone and he can't just like it's almost that thing about being so positive all the time like he like that he can right it's it's almost like I don't know exactly how to say this but like bad shit bad shit happens in our lives right mm -hmm. and if you just walk around being like no you know like everything's gonna be positive and I'm always happy and I'm all like he he has this overly positive like I'm just gonna come up with my yeah folksy I'm gonna have come up with my quirky little you know and people are going to get it and they're just going to come over to my side and like like my niceness and and it's, you know, it's worked up to a point until the breakdown it works up marriage. to a point and then he and then it doesn't and you know like I, think, I don't even think the breakdown of his marriage is the turning point which is you know I don't either I was just gonna say I think it's interesting because it is in season two where he quote-unquote stops making sure everyone's constantly okay aka nate right, right. like where he kind of lets nate be on his own and he's actually trying to get help for himself so the fact that this happens towards the end of season one in your perspective um that makes sense to me so i'm, yeah, I'm excited true. to hear what you got to say yeah. Yeah. And the same, he, he stops in season two worrying about Sam, right? Sam sees him as a father figure and he, he sees that someone else needs more of a dad than Sam does and, yeah. and makes that choice. Right. But no, I'm very curious to hear what you have to say about. Yeah. Um, I'm hoping that this theory comes together, but all apologies, the episode second to last of the first season, um, we are, it starts with the fact that Roy is struggling now, he's getting older, he's not as fast as he was, he's just not keeping up with the rest of the team and it's beginning to become obvious. Um, so Ted at the start of the episode is trying to keep Roy happy. He doesn't want Roy to feel bad in any way. He tells him off for putting himself down. And during this episode, not only does he hype up Roy, but he then goes straight to Rebecca and hypes Rebecca up about her article while also standing up for Higgins without upsetting Rebecca. He's like towing such a fine line. Even when he gives, you know, biscuits to Higgins, somebody else has to pay the price for that, which is later on, like the very end of the episode. But he just, he's juggling everybody's feelings. And I feel like we've got a saying, is this, a, I don't know if this is a saying where you're from, but he's robbing Peter to pay Paul. So basically with, with people, we're trying to keep people happy. It's like he's spinning plates and he's not doing very well at it. And this is the episode where I think the plates kind of come crumbling down. When Beard and Nate confront Ted in the office when he thinks they're going to do improv and really mm -hmm. they're just like trying to get him to see sense, he doesn't seem to mind telling them no. And I have a theory that that's because he doesn't believe that they will be hurt by his decision. He believes that they're making a decision for 
practical senses but not for emotional so he doesn't think it, it emotionally hurt them to tell them you're wrong sorry he also we then skipped him sort of forgiving Rebecca incredibly quickly considering how hurt you can tell that he is when you re-watch that Jason Stakas acting is so good because the subtlety in it when you do a second watch is great I think the reason for that is you can see she's genuinely hurt like you can see she's genuinely sorry and she really feels quite bad about it. And to me, he's probably thinking, I don't want to make her feel any worse than she already does. I'm just going to forgive her, even if he isn't quite actually there yet, which we don't really know unless we're inside Ted's head. This bit's interesting to me, but I don't know if it's just interesting to me because I've been in this theory for too long. But when Ted addresses the team and he tells them, warm up properly because, you know, if it's like rice. If you don't warm up properly, things can get nasty. And that, again, is, is seeing the possible problems and preventing them before they become a problem, which is a big anxiety thing. You know, like you're just always you've always got eight or, or nine different scenarios in your head for one thing for which way it could go when you're planning ahead all the time. So I just thought, that, you know, in the one sense, it's just a throwaway comment, but in the other sense, it fitted in really well with this. He also goes on to say to the lads that speed is important. But being able to stop and change direction quickly is very underrated, which I think when we look at in the overall episodes can apply to Ted, you know, because he, he has to change direction quickly. I also think it's representative of anxiety as well and the sort of pre-predator thing in, in the flight, you know, like being able to change direction quickly, being able to sort of like dodge um the problem. Ted's reaction to Beard and Nate ignoring him, which is hilarious when he's trying to tell his British owl joke, is just to laugh it off. But I think you can see it, sli it slightly gets to him because he's just not used to that, you know, like from them. He's used to it from everybody else, but like not from them. When Ted meets Roy in the stands, uh, which is so cute because Roy's like, there's loads of other seats and he's like, it's what my ticket says. It's such a Ted joke. It's such, it's perfect. But he tries to soften the blow of the bad news that he's not going to start Roy with a cute story about kittens and puppies. And when Roy's like, what, what's going on? He's like, oh, well, I'm doing this thing that my mum used to do, which is whenever she had something bad or a horrible thing to talk about with me, she would soften the blow with something weird or cute. And I thought, that feels like we might get to get to feel more of that. You know, there, there might be like, that might be a setup. I'm not sure. It's hard to tell. They have you thinking everything's a setup. But yeah, I fe it felt like a bigger moment than it was a throw just a throwaway comment at the time. When he tries to tell Roy he isn't going to start him, he can see how deeply hurt Roy is because of his reaction. At the end of it, he has this big sigh and you can just feel it's really all getting to him. Like he's not keeping... He can't keep everybody happy. And I think he's starting to realise that he can't keep everybody happy, but he doesn't know what to do about it. He tries to justify to Beard. He goes into the pub and Beard having bought those four pints doesn't feel like the first time he's had to do that, right? Like he's he's experienced this kind of thing before. Yeah. And this is how he's, he's had to deal with it. It's not, he basically tries to justify to Beard that it'll hurt Roy's career and, you know, we could really do some damage here. And Beard loses his shit and basically just says what everybody else is thinking. This matters to people here and this is a whole team and you're going to sacrifice the whole team over the feelings of one person. Instantly, instead of sort of taking that and sitting with it, Ted just takes the first beer and starts to like put it down. 
put the, like half of the beer's gone before we've cut away. He's self-medicating at this point because he's got to the stage in, in the sort of anxiety cycle where he's like, right, I've done everything I physically can here. I can't do anything else. I don't know what to do. So he, he drinks and he drinks all of those pints until he nearly walks out in front of a car <laughs> when Roy saves him and takes him, you know, they go back to the apartment. Apart, I'm sounding like you, it's the flat, the apartment. <laughs> sounds We're corrupting you. I know, you're getting in there. When Roy apologises for telling Ted to go and fuck himself, Ted doesn't even like take a beat and he goes, oh, laddie da because he just doesn't consider his own feelings very important. You know, he's like, ah, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, because it's he's more worried about keeping everybody else happy. And I, th- I thought that was interesting. But he suggests Roy should be marked as injured so that it doesn't look bad. So he's kind of not got his way, but he's still trying to put in the caveats of softening everything the best that he can. He knows he now can't start Roy, he just can't uh, do it. But he's still trying to, like, figure out the way for that to work like he's still trying to fix it he tells Roy I understand why you might not want to come to training right now I don't know an awful lot about football but I don't think there's many managers who would be like yeah you don't have to come to training if you don't want (laughs) I mean like I just it would be get your fucking arse you're paid you know that sort of thing so he gives him like an out on that as well but I think the interesting part is when he sees Roy turn up at training there's a realization on his face that it didn't managed to keep everybody happy in the way that he wanted and it still worked and I feel like that might be a bit of learned behavior for Ted that if he lets go of control of trying to keep everybody happy it doesn't necessarily mean everything's always going to to crumble to the ground sort of thing and that's where I think that the turning point is for Ted is that he's Mm -hmm. seen things can change I'd agree yeah that's really interesting and I and I think it's you made the point about which I remember we started to talk about in clubhouse once, but like, there is something about the drinking that's not right. Like, and I, and I don't necessarily think that Ted's like drinking so much that I'm like, wow, he's really, but there's something about the self-medicating, like the points where he's drinking are when he's at his lowest and he is self-medicating. He is numbing himself. It's you know, he and, and it's not what he drinks, you know, he's not just drinking like, Oh, Hey, it's a Friday night. I'm going to have a couple pints with my friend. It's always like, I'm at my lowest point and I am going to now drink. I'll have a triple Jack Daniels after the conversation with, yes. with Rupert and Rebecca. And yeah, I mean, like, because I think a lot of people can think of alcoholism and think you have to be drinking from the minute that you're awake to the minute that you're asleep. And right, alcoholism, it's, yeah. you know, it's, it's your relationship with people. And like, if, if he, when he gets to that certain point in anxiety cycle and he can't fix things, turns to, to drink like that. Right. People like binge drinkers, right? Like that whole idea of like people, they don't drink for six months, but they have one. And then next thing they know, they have 30. That was me. And they're blindly drunk, right? Like, yeah. So there's something, Mm -hmm. there's something I haven't quite cracked it, but I think about it all the time. Whenever I see scenes like that and I watch those parts, I was like, there's something there about the drinking. I don't know what it is yet, but it's a coping mechanism for sure. An avoidance mechanism. Absolutely. Yeah. Jim Caldy says, I just read this and I'm really looking forward to reading the next one. Jim, you'll have to let us know if any more Ted Lasso comparisons pop up in the next book. I I like what everyone's done here. And I kind of actually like that we're talking about a book that was given to a character we don't have much context for because it does give us so much opportunity to use them 
use the book as a proxy for whoever we want, right? We actually mm -hmm. talk about Robbie. We've talked about the players. I'm going to kind of go down the same path Michaela did and talk about Ted and use him as a proxy just because if he's the one who selected the book, I think it can tell us a lot about him. I think the first thing I really want to mention here and the thing that's going to kick everything else off is that Ted has selected a book that he's giving to someone in which the therapist is a literal monster, right? The therapist in this book turns out to be an actual monster, not just a figurative one, but an actual like monster. And in season two, you know, in the first episode, when we start talking about, uh, when they start talking about bringing in a sports psychologist for Danny, he's in the pub talking to Beard and talking about how his experience with, with therapists, he's had one and it was in his marriage counseling with Michelle and he felt like the whole thing was a setup. And that's so brilliant because with this book, every single interaction that Jacob has with the therapist is part of a setup, right? <laughs> the therapist is Literally. out to get him. It is a literal setup. Um, and so I, I think that's just so telling of, of, of Ted. And, you know, he has other things in common with, with Jacob. Obviously, we've got this. He has a father figure in his life who has died in a very, very violent manner. He is the first person on scene for that. You know, that's true of both Ted and of Jacob. And then that experience changes the whole trajectory in their life of their lives and eventually both of them end up going to the UK to work out the aftermath right so I think all of these things are are interesting um parallels mm -hmm. so I really tried to think through this this thing with Ted and therapists and how what we see in the book works with what we see from Ted into the show and so looking at the literature on Miss Peregrine's home there's not a ton of it a lot of what's there really interestingly is in like undergraduate theses that are written and it's more than one university but by students in Indonesia um it's like I was like why are all these people in Indonesia writing about Miss Peregrine's home I have no idea um but that's what there are and you know they're undergraduate and so you don't expect them to be well, any more than what you'd have an undergrad, right? They're still pretty good, particularly for people who are writing in English when that's not a native language for them. Uh, so there's this one thesis I found, and it's by um, someone named um, Ayu Luliardi at the Muhammadiyah University of Surakarta. So I've totally botched at least four pronunciations there, but we're getting through it. And basically- Sounded good the, to me. <laughs> basically, uh, what they were writing about is analyzing from a sociological perspective skepticism in the book, Miss Peregrine's Home. And I first saw the title and was like, well, because when we think about skepticism right now, it's used as such a shorthand for people who have decided something is not true and they are not going to believe it no matter what evidence they're presented with, right? You know, you hear people refer to themselves as a skeptic and it kind of doesn't matter what you, you know, <laughs> what evidence you show them, they're not going to buy it anymore. But that's not really what skepticism is is right you have that dogmatic dogmatic skepticism but there's also this tradition in science of methodological skepticism where you use doubt and questioning in search of knowledge and truth when we think about ted it can be super easy to think of his be curious not judgmental as just this naive uncritical acceptance of new information like Ted's just going to see what everything is and he, he's going to believe whatever is convenient. But that's, I think, not really even actually fair to Ted. I think what Ted is doing is more consistent with a form of methodological skepticism where he's trying to not immediately come to snap decisions. You know, he's not going to call himself a vaccine skeptic and decide he doesn't like them and no matter what he sees, right? He wants to be curious and actually try to take in all the facts before he comes to like tentative decisions, decisions about things. So he's not going to come to hard judgments. He's always open to accepting new evidence 
evidence, right? And so we can see evidence for that's kind of what Ted's doing when they start talking about hiring a sports psychologist. Because when he's asked his opinion as a quote, he says, you know, like, you know, someone, I think Higgins asks him what he thinks of, of psychologists. And he says, well, general apprehension and a modern Midwestern skepticism. Love it. And you see those two things there, and they could be lumped together as the same thing, right? Depending on how you think of skepticism, but apprehension and skepticism are, are not actually. So if we think about his skepticism in the context of his curious approach to the world, it's a lot more receptive to the possibility that things could work, that it could be good than the general apprehension would be. And so if we loop back and, and think about the book, methodological skepticism is, is critical to Jacob's path that absolutely drives his story forward because as a child he believes his grandfather's story uncritically as he grows he comes to this con like conclusion that they're not true he you know decides his grandpa's senile or was just making up stories um but what ends up driving the story is when he gets curious he has an event ha happens that makes him question what the actual truth was and even in the face of the gaslighting he gets from his therapist right who knows that all this stuff is real and is trying to talk him out of it his search for what is actually true is what drives his journey and and propels him forward. So as the thesis argues, if you want to see the skeptical approach in the story, we have some elements to look for, right? We're not immediately trusting the information we're given. We're thinking critically about things, but a critical component to methodological skepticism is curiosity. You have to have that curiosity there. We see people not immediately believing information. We see Jacob not believing his grandfather. We see people not believing Jacob about what he saw when his grandfather dies. But then he starts looking for information and he starts to get evidence that is consistent with his grandfather's stories and mm -hmm. so things become more and more interesting and this curiosity builds and his skepticism shifts to one that's more looking for truth than one that's immediately dismissive and it's the same thing with miss peregrine initially jacob takes everything she's saying at face value this is the loop it has to happen this keeps people safe right this is important but as he learns and he starts asking questions and has the skeptical approach he figures out that the loop you know isn't actually the best thing for everyone and so his curiosity again will drive the narrative forward if we look back to ted then you know we introduce sharon in season two and what we're seeing at the start of season two is the setup for this real internal conflict with ted in regards to therapy so he does have that apprehension and mistrust and and that side of him wants absolutely nothing to do with therapy but he also has this curious approach that leads him to want to know more i love dr sharon as a character so much because Sarah Niles acting is so brilliant. She's such a perfect foil. The many ways that Ted's apprehension makes him kind of want to elide and kind of cop out on. He wants whatever people are getting out of therapy, but he doesn't want to go through the process that's dictated by someone else. Mm -hmm. And so that's so much of the conflict internally for him in season two. You know, she comes in and she sets these professional boundaries right away. They are going to call her doctor. She is not going to engage with their superstition. She is going to do the actual work and she is going to expect everyone else to actually do the work too. She sets really firm boundaries with Ted. Like, you know, he wants to be on the periphery of things. So when he introduces Danny to her and he's like, hey, you want me to stick around and help you break the ice? And she's like, no, there's the door, right? Like right out of there. Love it. Um, And, you know, Ted is both taken aback, but also 
you know, he addresses in the pub with Beard. He's like, well, I thought it was jealousy. It wasn't that. No, there's there's some of that, right? Especially when she engages with the players in a way that he can't, right? Her use of foreign languages with the players who are not native speakers, for example. Mm -hmm. And so this whole setup of the relationship has this fantastic tension between Ted's apprehension, his absolute resistance to the idea of therapy, but the curiosity that keeps, keeps building as we go through the season and he sees what it's accomplishing for other people. So if we go back to the start of season two, first episode, Danny takes the penalty shot, kills the dog. And then Ted goes in and gives the press conference after Earl's killed. And he tells the story of Hank the dog, this dog that bit him when he was three and he was scared of dogs forever. But then in his teen years, he ended up taking care of Hank and then he was really sad when Hank died. And as an aside here, Hank is a nickname for Henry, right? Um, so oh, like Ted's son. <laughs> like Ted's son, right? So obviously this is sort of a pivotal dog in Ted's history because I, you know, I don't think we often name our, well, maybe it's a Midwest thing, I don't know, uh, children after dogs. <laughs> I mean, the only person I know who did that was the crocodile hunter. He named his daughter after his favorite crocodile. <laughs> but and he Hello. had a tragic ending I, did too. Did we just become best friends? <laughs> I also love the crocodile hunter. <laughs> That's the only other person I can think of who has done that, though. But, uh, you know, it, I'm sure there are others out there, but it, it does say no, something about it. It does. I, I, it says something about the importance of that in, in Ted's life, I think. But, you know, when he's telling this story, he does. It's one of these folksy anecdotes, right? A anecdotes. And he gets to this, you know, it's uh, so I'm going to quote here. It's funny to think about the things in your life that can make you cry just knowing they existed can then become the same things that make you cry knowing that they're now gone. I think those things come into our life to help us get from one place to a better one. And I hope we helped Earl do just that. So just in the context where we've only seen the first episode, it's so King non sequitur. I mean, it's a story about a dead dog and it's appropriate in that sense, right? But how on earth is Earl helping us get to from one place to another one? We never cried knowing Earl existed. Like, what is this? But then if you see it as the whole season plays out, we can see that what is going to play that role in this season is Dr. Sharon, right? She is going to be the thing that at first Ted cries just knowing she exists and later he's going to cry knowing she, that she's gone. She is the thing that helps him get to an, a better place. So Earl's death does this just in the sense that it introduces and gives us the opportunity to bring Dr. Sharon in. Back to this tension that Ted has between his apprehension and his curiosity. It largely manifests with him trying to skirt his way about therapy. And he tries to find out what it is he needs. Like, what is everyone getting out of this without ever actually engaging and doing the work? The, the first episode in the second season has this great part, you know, when Danny has been cured of the yips, right? She's obviously done something fantastic. Like he's out on the pitch and he, he you know. You're not supposed to say that out loud. <laughs> you've jinxed us i i have jinxed not us. i am not superstitious the yips are not a superstition they are an actual Shit thing we're going to dress it right. i know all right dr sharon <laughs> there we go it's gonna fire you beard's gonna fire you <laughs> so so after that scene on the pitch they come in like they're in the office talking and danny comes in to you know to be super excited and you know ted's got this curiosity and he's trying to avoid dr sharon and so he asks danny he's like you know just out of curiosity he he flat out uses that word right out of curiosity what is it she said that helped you and danny gives the most amazingly danny but completely fucking incomprehensible answer right he says dr sharon helped me remember that even though football is life football is also death and that football is football too but mostly that football is life right that is <laughs> useless for ted I to mean, be I fair <laughs> it did it did just say memento mori memento vivir though 
like just in Danny's own way. No, no, no. Essentially, I, 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 I am. I am with you. I love it. I think it's perfectly Danny, and I think it had a great deal of meaning for Danny. But for Ted, for someone who's trying to figure out what the secret for therapy is that like makes everyone's life better, <laughs> there is nothing there, right? <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's evidence that she's doing something that works. Mm -hmm. And so we go through the season and we see more of this tension in his relationship to it because the first time Ted goes in to try to talk to her, you know, for his own therapy, he kind of goes on his charm offensive, right? I think it's the first time when he does this, where he starts talking. It's it's when he starts talking about his favorite book, right? And he's like, what's your favorite book? My favorite book's The Fountainhead, which we still never have explained. That'll kill me forever. Uh, thank you, writers. <laughs> um, right? But he starts on that and she just cuts him off and immediately calls him out, says, you know, I see what you're doing. You know, I, I can see why this is very disarming and you're very charming and I see why this works for you. It immediately cuts off this defense mechanism that he has of, of just trying to charm people and win them over. She is going to make him do the work and she's going to make him do it but on her terms. And he really struggles with that. She does that and his defense mechanisms go up and he ends up, you know, berating her because she's only listening because she's getting paid and not being truthful because she charges an hourly rate for 50 minutes. This is right after, right? She tells Ted she's only interested in the truth, which is a direct reference kind of to the skeptical process of looking for truth. He really has this struggle to engage with therapy as, well, is this actually a search for truth? He doesn't want to do it. So he keeps calling out aspects of it he doesn't like. And mm -hmm. so we have this whole season, this whole sort of dance between his apprehension and his defense mechanisms on one side and his curiosity on what would it be like if this therapy actually works for me? And I think the thing that keeps his curiosity going is he keeps seeing evidence of it working for the players right he sees Colin come out of her office and be like she's amazing and you know we see Zoro go in and she immediately speaks to him in French and he's like you know instant instant connection there he just keeps seeing it work there's a theme in the novel that's brought up there's this book chapter um by a professor at Slippery Rock University um named Danette DeMarco and her book chapter is called Time Appropriation and Phototextual Intervention in Ransom Riz, Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children. Okay. And it's actually a pretty deep book chapter and it goes into a lot of things that I'm not going to touch on. Um, it, it's, it's brilliant. It's very well done. I'm just going to take a real slight layer of what she talks about. One important thing that she brings up is a theme in the book that sometimes things that are meant to protect us, even when they're super well-intentioned, can be actually the instruments of our own oppression, the things that hold us back. And you talked about this little Michaela, right? So in the novel, we've got the time loops and they're protective physically of the peculiar children, but they do hold them back. And so we end up with these people who are like, they have 80 years of experience time, but they're still functioning and behaving as children. I mean, if you really step back and that's weird, right? We have 80 year olds who are adolescents or younger who have lived all of this time and had all these experiences, but never been able to develop and grow outside of that. And the argument from Ms. Peregrine for doing this is that she needs to protect them from the whites and the holocaust from being physically killed and destroyed, right? But ultimately that doesn't even work. It still can't protect them. Within the context of the novel, such a metaphor for, I think, the way parents sometimes try to overprotect their children in a way that keeps them from developing. But if we're looking at this with regards to Ted Lasso, right, Ted has all these mechanisms that are protective for him, but holding him back from growing and developing as a person, right? That trying to take care of everyone is such a trauma response. And it, it you know, it's not 
bad in terms of it helps him develop relationships with people, but he does it to such an extreme that he does it at the expense of self-care. And so there's a limit to where his relationships can go because I think Michaela touched on this brilliantly. He's trying to make everyone happy and there's just a limit to the depth you can kind of have if you have such breadth of, of being all things to all people at all times, right? Yeah. And he also, as we go through the show, has this folksy kind of, you know, he, he occasionally just goes full himbo when he deals with information that's hard for him to deal with. He'll fill in the blanks with just something absolutely ridiculous. And we've talked about this before, right? When Rebecca says she's been having a torrid affair with Sam and he goes, UL Jackson, right? Like he, that's a protective mechanism too. Like he just refuses to engage. I, I just wanted to comment on that, that whole idea of like trying to make everyone happy as a, as a child of divorce like I learned the very much the hard way that that is not yeah, something you can actually possible. do <laughs> <laughs> and it really does hurt you more than it hurts anyone else in the long run so Ted also is I mean he's not a child of divorce but he his parents are not together because his dad died and he probably spent a lot of time trying to make his mom happy afterward you know right. uh, I imagine that was that was a part of his coping mechanism back then too and so ted is going to have to address like these coping mechanisms right he's going to have to break through that in order to progress and so there's another theme that's both in the novel and i think i would argue in the show and that's this idea of going through doors so there's a quote really early in the book where he jacob has gotten a fight they're already in wales he's gotten a fight with his dad or an argument where his grandfather or his dad tells him that he worships his grandfather you know and that maybe he's going to have to accept some hard truths about his grandfather and he gets really mad about it and he goes out and slams the door and his quote there is sometimes you just have to walk through a door sometimes you just need to go through a door going through that door is pivotal for him in that moment because that's when he goes to the museum and learns about the you know the the bog mummy that they've found and that's going to lead him on all sorts of journeys right and there's all sorts of doors and portals and barriers and things like that that they need to go through the children do in the narrative you know there's the back and forth in and out of the loop right that all of these doors that they go through that are crucial and so you come back to the theme of things that protect us holding us back because there's more than just the loops with that in the novel right so we have the priest hole at the inn. It's the whole name of the inn, right? It's a, a, a joke in the book too, and it's the piss hole, right? But it's the priest hole. So that's originally put in in order to protect priests to keep them from being murdered. But it's this dank, confined little hole, right? It's protecting you, but it's no way to live, right? You can't stay down there. But then in the book, they need to hide there, right? Jacob and Emma are running away and they hide in the priest hole. But what ends up happening there's a door there. Emma knows there's a door there, right? They bust out of that priest hole, they kick that door open and they go out into the rest of the world. Doors are a really important metaphor in the novel. And I think doors also, there's a lot of imagery with that in terms of Ted and Sharon's, Dr. Sharon's relationship. There's a door he really needs to go through to progress. And functionally, that's the door to Sharon's office. But there's so many false starts, so many frustrations before he goes in and actually engages. He isn't wrong to be apprehensive. Like some doors we really, really need to go through, but sometimes you go through doors and they're just fucking awful, right? Like in the book, that's points made too, because early on when the two ridiculous rap kids take him, right? And they're like, oh, there's all sorts of shit in that house, right? And he opens the door to that one and goes in and it's literal shit, right? It's like sheep manure everywhere. Ted has tried therapy once. And I think it's an important thing to point out that not all therapists are good at their job, right? <laughs> And therapists, some just aren't appropriate for you. 
Right. I mean, I thought it was, I, I guess I don't know that much about the broad world of marriage counseling, but I thought it was kind of weird that the setup was Michelle had this counselor and then all of a sudden Ted was brought in too, because I would think you'd kind of want someone who is, uh, am I alone there? Someone who is more neutral oh. to the marriage to, okay. No, you should <laughs> not. If you have a therapist and you want right. a marriage, they are your, different, right. yeah. different people. And so the door to that therapist's office was obviously a problem, but that doesn't mean we stop going through doors. And so even before Dr. Sharon comes in the show, even in season one, there's imagery of Ted struggling with doors, right? We have, once he's walking into the locker room and the um, security door isn't all the way up, right? And he's walking through and he cracks his head, right? <laughs> and then we have the one that I realized was not intentional, or at least it wasn't intentional for him to get injured the way he did. But when he's leaving Rebecca's office and he jumps and cracks his head on the door, right? So all the way through, we have Ted like, struggling with doors doors are a problem for him but that's then, amazing that's that's such a good point I, I love that but then when dr sharon gets here right there's so much door imagery with her you know he's trying to engage and there's a lot of her you know this is my session. I am closing the door. The, the way she sets up boundaries so often are with her closing the door. And then he ends up, you know, after a first session, he goes out. And even when they show people arguing, they don't show a lot of door slamming in the show, but they show him slam the door on her. When he goes in her office, because he wants to make an appointment because he's had this panic attack and he's upset, he falls asleep on the couch, right? She comes in in the middle of the night. He's closed the door behind him, right? She comes into this room and it's like, holy shit, he's there. But there's all this door imagery and what's going on and, and eventually he chooses to engage and go through that door and that's what's going to let him sort of develop and grow so these these two ideas of sometimes needing to go through a door and also sometimes the things that protect us you know are also the things that oppress us are um kind of really what i wanted to get to there i also in our discussion and Michaela brought this up a little bit too. You know, when we talked about uh, the Iron Giant, we talked about a shadow text, which is this idea from an academic named Perry Nottleman who writes about children liter children's literature. Um, and as just a quick recap for people who really should listen to our last episode, but if they haven't, right, a shadow text, um, basically in children's literature, you have uh, an explicit text, which is what any reader of the text will understand based on exactly what's said. But there's an implied second reader where you have the adult who can fill in with their knowledge and experience kind of what's actually going on so it's called a shadow text it's an implicit other text and i liked in this novel because i think when Michaela started it she's like oh there's a shadow text here right spotted it right away and what i think is really fun here the idea of a shadow text kind of gets played with that we see it change as we see jacob develop right because as a young child he believes his grandpa's stories there's a shadow text for anyone else reading that because we see oh this this child was, you know, marked as special and he had to escape from monsters. And we're like, oh, obviously that's a Jewish child and they're getting away from the Nazis given the World War II context, right? And then Jacob grows up and he actually gets enough experience and enough knowledge that he picks up on that shadow text for himself. He picks up that implicit thing. And then the novel just takes the whole thing and blows it up because the original story was true, right? I just, I absolutely love that in, in writing this fairy tale, Ransom Briggs did that. I think that's, uh, sorry, it's just I, a point of nerdery. No, I, I think really, it was a lot of fun. <laughs> you put into words what I was struggling with as well is that when I was trying to look at anything didactically, I was thinking, yeah, but then the whole thing gets twisted on its arse. So is that didactic or am I just reading too much into it? Yeah, no, no, you had it. Twisted it on its ass is right there. <laughs> so, 
So I, I thought that was a really fun component of the story. I love just how we could take this sort of from the micro individual character that received this book out to the macro where it applies uh, not just to the characters in Ted Lasso's world, but to us uh, as outsiders who are taking in both of these uh, pieces of media at once. I don't know. Yeah. And, and I, I just wanted to pick up on what Bex and I completely agree. Like, I think we all tend to like, um, sometimes be like almost kind of apologize for our section. Like, oh, I know I'm doing this. I'm doing this. But the thing that we each do, like Miss Peregrine's group, the thing that, you know, it was said earlier, the thing that we each do and bring to this is so interesting. And like, if I came on and had the same thing you did, Marita, like where would be the interest, right? Like mm-hmm. the fact that right. like, we each find our own piece. And we always, every time we all seem to find our own unique one. We've never come to one of these and been like, oh yeah, that yeah. was the same. That was the same take right. I had. Well, even Michaela with, with me, she's like, well, I'm going to talk about Ted mental illness. I'm like, I'm <laughs> sure we both have our unique points. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we did it again, ladies. <laughs> <laughs> you read a book and like maybe maybe it was because I had read the book before or something or just you know again I've just had a lot going on in the last few weeks I'm Mm -hmm. like right hearing you hearing the thing like the things that each of you pulled out of it like in some ways it seems obvious it's just like oh yeah yeah no I can see that like of course like right I get it I'm you know like I'm following you I can see where you're pulling that but at the same time like it never occurred to me right like that's so I would put you it know and I, I just find that so interesting and that's what makes yeah. the people's different like that's the whole point of books right we each see our own piece in it we see ourselves in it possibly right like we're oh, pulling yeah. out the things that mean something to us that's part of what I love about doing this with the books is if we sit here and try to talk about the the producers of the show and their intent that gets boring really fast because there's a wrong mm-hmm. answer <laughs> right? yeah. they can just be like no you're totally off mm-hmm. base right but well, like but- the wonder wall song when everybody was so convinced they knew exactly what it was about and the whole yes. time it's him trying to protect it's right. bloody you don't know you never know what do we have next on the docket Michaela? we have fuck scott fitzgerald <laughs> i'm not gonna leave that and i just wanted to make you laugh yes you should i think you, you should. should his name has to be fuck because why would you just change it to F, Scott? I'm doing a bit from Ted to I'm not stealing jokes, but yeah. We are going to be doing The Beautiful and Damned by F. Scott Mc... <laughs> See, now that you didn't say it, you can't say his name. Myself. You're Scottish, you're, you're, you're Scottish you, have to, you have to swear somewhere or it doesn't come out right. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> It's because I'm so desperate. I want to say fuck Scott Fitzgerald every time that I have to go F in my head. Like, well, so you should, honestly. you should Roy Kent it. You should be like fun Scott Fitzgerald. <laughs> oh, that's so good. So the next book we're doing is uh, my favourite. <laughs> no, I'm just being a little bit moody. It's a 1920s book by F. Scott Fitzgerald called The Beautiful and Damned. And it was whose book, everyone? Jamie Tart. The title should have given it away. Jamie Tart. Which he threw away promptly. And I'm so looking forward to this because I know it was just meant as a one note joke. Like everyone else got a YA novel, right? So Ted picked meaning. He knew what was going to happen. And he just gave a title in a joke. Or sorry, a joke and a title to Jamie, but I, I still think we're going to dive into this and undoubtedly come up with all sorts of yeah, interesting. If, you, if in season three, if he's just reading it in the background, like he's went, oh, I'm going to go back that and read be that because I like Ted now, so I'm going to go and read it. That would be yeah. really funny. 
This one, I just starts quoting it wrongly, like Jamie does (laughs) with everything. And as we remind people, like you can engage with this text, whatever way works for you. Um, If you find that it's a bit of a slog to get through uh, in the print copy, you know, listen to an audio. Are there film adaptations of this? I don't know. But if there are, dig into it I probably not but engage with it how it works for you if you want to go online and read the spark notes like that's fine whatever whatever works for you in terms of trying to understand like why this book besides the joke is there anything besides this joke maybe not but we'll see I bet you there is you know be interesting because we're not expecting anything it'll be interesting to see that there might be yeah I'm excited (laughs) yeah Oh, there is a film. I'm on Wikipedia. Oh, a silent film. Yeah, Yeah. 1922 silent drama. I think there'll be something in it because what I remember, I read this book 3,000 years ago because I'm a vampire, you know. (laughs) I read this 3,000 years ago. That's (laughs) astonishing given the 1922 release date. (laughs) (laughs) I'm also a a time-traveling vampire. Sweet. (laughs) Literature's just recycled through the ages. It was probably written 3,000 years. Right. You know, they're kind of the society couple, like, like Keely and Jamie, you know, and like, I think, I think we might find more in it is all I was trying to say was just that, like, you know, they are kind of the popular young hip thing and they're, and I I don't remember the rest of the book, but maybe there will be something in it about being young and being damned and stupid. And I'm sure I won't have a wait for that one at the library on the audio books though. I'm sure I'll be able to get that one real quick. I'm just gobsmacked by these dates. So the, the, the novel came out March 4th, 1922, and the film adaptation came out January 1st, 1923. That is... That's a quick turnaround. No, I mean, I guess if you don't have to write a script. Okay, well, this was fun. Again, I really enjoyed it. I love hearing all your takes, and I can't wait to hear more next time. Have a good week, everyone. Thanks, Bye. everybody. Bye. Bye. Happy reading. Follow us on Twitter at Beards Book Club or send an email to us at coachbeardsbookclub at gmail.com. Subscribe to us on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Share us with your friends and family. Subscribe and leave a five-star review. If you prefer the video version, subscribe to our YouTube channel, Coach Beards Book Club, now.